0: Thanks, Daniel. Great to have the Bible with us and open, and uh, we're going to be working through um, the passage that Daniel and Kathy have brought us today. We're going to pray um, that God would help us and that we might see Jesus for who he is revealed to be in this passage. How about we pray? Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the fact that our our, uh, ears have heard your word read in the service today. We pray, Father, that you might take this living Word and that you might apply it to our hearts and our minds. Father, make us soft-hearted, give us attentive ears, give us spiritual eyes to see who Jesus really is, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Awesome. Well, uh, I want to ask you, we're coming up to the holidays, at least for some of us, uh, having a holiday. Is is everyone having a holiday? you excited about that? Those people who are not having a holiday, you're now more frustrated than ever because I said that. Is that right? Yeah, okay, Rick, I can see that. Um, Right, so here's the thing. When you have a holiday, you can get a chance to have a hobby. Does anyone have hobbies? Yes, some of us still have hobbies. Okay, I like hobbies. Um, Somebody here who said they were not having a holiday um, said that their hobby was having a rest. So he gets around to it occasionally. What is a hobby? Well, a hobby is a regular activity that's done for enjoyment, typically during one's leisure time. Well, that's fine. I have some hobbies. Uh, I can share them with you. So um, I love landscape photography. Um, Particularly in the morning at dawn, I like to go out and take pictures of the landscape. That's something I love doing. Uh, I enjoy plastic scale modelling and building planes. And I've only just got back into it, and I'm very excited about it. And yes, I'm a nerd, and you can all look at me and go, you're weird, and that's okay. I'm all right. It's my hobby. You don't have to join me. Uh, The other one that I love to do, and I do multiple times a week, is uh, to ride my bike, uh, to keep fit, and to enjoy seeing our little corner of the southwest, which I love. Uh, And so they're some of my hobbies. I guess they're fun, they're enjoyable, they're something that you do in your spare time. And what I want to ask today is for all of us sitting here, is Christianity a hobby for you? Is Christianity a hobby for you? Does it get a look in on a little bit of leisure time that you have? Uh, is it something that occupies your heart and your mind for a small sliver of time and we'll get back to it sometime later? How does Christianity, how does Jesus fit into your life? Is Christianity a hobby? Well, the reason what I want to ask is for many, many people around the world today, it is far from a hobby. It is far from a hobby. And uh, I was looking at uh, the statistics from an an organization called Open Doors. And Open Doors is an organization that measures Christian persecution around the world. I've got to tell you guys, I lost a couple of hours uh, the other afternoon just reading up on this stuff. And once you start looking, you'll be blown away. So let me just share you some top-level statistics from Open Doors. You can chase them up online. Go Google it afterwards. Doors puts together a report every year that talks about the level of persecution for Christians around the world. And what they tell us is that 2018 saw an increase of 14% in persecution for, in the top 50 countries of persecution around the world, and these Christians experience high levels of persecution. So it went up 14%. What does that mean? That means, according to their statistics, that 245 million Christians around the world, experience high levels of persecution. Now, just to kind of reframe that number, which seems extraordinary, that's a quarter of a billion of our brothers and sisters around the world. That is a truly extraordinary number. Now, there are a lot of Christians in the world, but what that means in practice is that one in nine Christians experience high levels of persecution worldwide. And that is not that somebody says a joke about them over the... That's not what's happening. These are high levels of persecution. And if you read this report, what it'll do is it'll break down one of each of these 50 countries and tell you what that persecution looks like in those places. What does that mean in practice? How does this play itself out? In a variety of ways, of course, but here's some truly dreadful statistics. So last year, to the best of their knowledge, Open Doors tells us, 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. The number that truly blew me away is that on average, what that means is 11 a day are killed for their faith. On top of that, 2,625 were were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And guys, I've got to tell you, I reckon that number is way below the actual number, but they're ones that they can verify. On top of that, places where Christians meet around the world were targeted. There were some in the Philippines just at the end of last year um, that were were bombed and blown up. 1,266 churches or church buildings were attacked in the past year. It's truly extraordinary, isn't it? And yet, when we look at those vast numbers, we kind of lose the story. So let me zoom in a little. Let me tell you the story of Karen, a man in India in a prayer meeting with uh, six other men and women, who were dragged out of their house by a Hindu mob, beaten with rods, and then taken down to the Hindu temple, where they were forced to reconvert. Karen's wounds were so bad that eventually uh, he had to have his lower leg amputated. That's India. There's a very famous case in Pakistan of this lady, Asia Bibi. Have you heard of this? She was a, uh, a, a Christian lady who went to fetch some water for her Muslim co-workers. On the way back from fetching the water, she, she sipped some of the water. Uh, they, they declared that the water had now become unclean because she had drunk from it a huge argument ensued between the women, at the end of which they accused her of blaspheming the prophet. That meant that she was arrested, a mob formed, and and she was arrested. She was in solitary confinement for eight years in Pakistan. She has recently been released, but she is not free to leave. That's in Pakistan. Pakistan. I have a story of a lady who's called Prisoner 42 from North Korea. A lady who went scavenging over the border into China because her family was starving. Along the way, she met some people who were Christians. On return, someone had found out that she'd interacted with Christians. She was abducted off the street by the government and is now in a retraining prison camp where she is tortured and asked to disown Jesus. This is North Korea, the number one most persecuted country in the world. Now brothers and sisters, these are terrible things, aren't they? The statistics are terrible, the personal stories are terrible, and one must ask, has something gone terribly wrong? Is this really what Jesus intended? How, how could it get out of hand like this? Isn't it just all one giant mistake? And the answer to that really comes down to, it depends on how you answer the question of who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus who is leading a church that looks like this? To find the answer, we're going to be looking through Luke chapter 9. I'm going to invite you to open it up with me, Um, and I, I want you to look at some of the descriptions of who Jesus is that are found here. Have a look at verses 18 and following. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So, so Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? He's with his disciples. Essentially, he says, take a pole for me. What's happening out there, guys? And they say, well, some people are saying John the Baptist, that you're John the Baptist. Now, I reckon this is the silliest possible answer, okay? Because John the Baptist did what to Jesus? You guys are pretty smart. He baptized him. So if John baptized Jesus, it's a little bit difficult mathematically for him to be John the Baptist. Would that be fair? Okay, so that's not a very connected answer, but it was one that was floating around. The other one says, Elijah or a prophet come back to life. That's why my little drawing has the arrow going up like that. Uh, A prophet come back to life. Why would they be expecting that? For each of these stories, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and see where that expectation might have come from. In, uh, In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. There's a prophet who's going to come, Moses had said, and so we should be listening, we should be looking out for the prophet. That's reasonable. And then in 2 Kings, chapter 1, we're told, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. See, why Elijah? Why do they say Elijah? Why, Why might Jesus be Elisha? Well, Elijah was walking along, and then a chariot came from heaven, picked him up and took him off to glory, right? So the theory is, he was taken away, perhaps he'll come back. And in fact, the book of Micah tells the people of Israel to expect Elijah to come. So it's not entirely unreasonable to think that perhaps Jesus is a resurrected prophet, a prophet come back. If it's true, what should you do with this piece of information? If Jesus is a prophet, come back, what should you do? Well, you should listen to him. Now, that's an entirely reasonable expectation, but it's wrong about who Jesus is. Let's continue. The investigation continues in verse 20. Jesus goes, I don't want you to phone a friend. I'm going to focus it in. Have a look with me at verse 20. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? So now it's not just an idea of what everyone else thinks. And I really like this church because this is the same for us. You're not sitting next to someone whom the answer is really important for. I mean, it, it, it is important for them. You can give them a nudge now and say, what are you but it's important for you. Who do you say I am? And Peter answers magnificently, I think because all the disciples were nudging each other in lips and saying, Pete, speak up, say something, say something, Peter. And Peter blurted it out and said, you're the Messiah. Well, that, that's reasonable. H- have a look at where we get that expectation from. We get that expectation from... 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I said this to you before, church, but we have to get into the habit of going, ah, 2 Samuel 7, right? Like this. Ah, 2 Samuel 7. You ready? One, two, three. Ah, 2 Samuel You need to know 2 Samuel 7, so that when people say it comes from 2 Samuel 7, you just go, ah. Okay, you're right, church. You understand? So it's from 2 Samuel 7. No, no, no. You've got to say where it's from. Okay, all right, right, all right, all right. So you should know this passage. It should be one of these passages that we know. God is speaking to David about the future of all of Israel. And he says these extraordinary words. He says, When your days are over, and when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the promised king of Israel. They've waited a thousand years for the descendant of David to come. Now, if that's true, what should you do? If you say you're the Messiah, what should you do? We well, should prepare to make him king in David's city. Do you know what David's city is? Jerusalem. So what we should do is we should go, you're the Messiah, grab Let's walk down to Jerusalem, find a throne, and make you ruler over all of Israel. Are you with me? That's what we should do if that's true. Brilliant, right? That is reasonable, and it's right, but there's more to the story. There is more to the story. Have a look with me at what happens the very next verse, because you're thinking, let's go down to Jerusalem and have a coronation. I know you're excited about that, church, aren't you? Let's, let's get down there. Let's, let's go do it. So have a look at the very next verse and, and see what happens. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Well, way to deflate the balloon. How are we supposed to get a group of people together to, to crown King Jesus when we're not supposed to tell anyone about it? And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Because this isn't what was expected, is it? Let's go and crown Jesus. And and the answer is, yes, he is the Son of Man, but he's going to come to suffer and be rejected. That doesn't sound right. doesn't sound like what should happen for the king of Israel And worse than that, the very people who should be putting the crown on his head are the ones who are going to reject him. Do you see that? Look at verse 22. The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. They should have been forming an orderly queue and going, crown, honor, glory. And Jesus says, you know what? They're all going to reject me. And so we go, that sounds terrible, Jesus. Surely you've got that wrong. There couldn't be any promise about that in the Old Testament, could there? There is. 700 years before Jesus was born, a man called Isaiah was doing a ministry in Israel. And here's the words that he spoke about the one who was to come. He said this, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. See, there is one in the Old Testament who we're told is the suffering servant. One who's chosen by God and yet who will be rejected and suffer. 700 years before Jesus in the prophet Isaiah. Well, if that's true, what should we do? Well, we should praise the suffering servant. The one who's chosen by God and yet endures all of that. What should we do? You should praise him for being obedient to God even through all of that. That's reasonable and it's right. That is who Jesus is. So what would it look like if you were to follow him? If you were to say, I'm with that guy, what would it mean for you and for me? Have a look with me at verses 23 and following. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death, before they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, what would it look like if you follow the suffering servant? Well, you too will sign up for an awesome program of rejection and suffering. Because we'll be following in the footsteps of the one who went before us. And and he says, I, I, I just want you to note here, guys, how many times has Jesus been crucified so far in the book of Luke? He hasn't been crucified, has he? He's just said to them, I'm going to die. And yet he says to his disciples, if you're to follow me, you're to take up your what? Now, this is amazing, isn't it? He's actually telling us not only that he will die, but how he will die. If you follow me, you're following me to a cross, to Roman humiliation and shame. Will you follow me? If you want to be my disciple, that is what's awaiting. It's cross-shaped following that is before you. And I want you to think this is extraordinary, right? It, it's truly shameful to pick up a cross. And I'll speak more about this on Good Friday. But it is shameful to pick up a cross. And Jesus is saying, do you want shame now or do you want shame later? Because following the crucified one looks terrible now, doesn't it? There's, there's no wonder, well, I'm with, the, I'm with the, the dead guy on the cross, But Jesus says it won't always be the case. There'll be a day when I return in my glory and the glory of the holy angels. And guys, just to let you in on this, on that day when we see Jesus, you're going to want to say, I'm on his team. When Jesus rocks up with unopposable power and majesty and the whole earth sees him, right? You're going to go, I'm with him. I'm with him, right? But here's the devastating part of this thing. If we've said, I don't like him, I'm ashamed of him, then he will say, I don't know you. And on that day, guys, there will be no more devastating word than that. So he says, if you're ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you on the day when I return in glory. Now, brothers and sisters, let me just, you know something here. It is not an unforgivable sin to have slipped up in this area, right? So some of you will have had a situation with your friends or your family where you're looking back even now and you're going, oh, crikey, I didn't stand up. It might have been your workplace. It might have been with a friend. And you think, oh, man, I didn't stand up for you, Jesus. I, I know I messed that up. It's not unforgivable, okay? But an attitude that says I'm ashamed of Jesus will lead to a set of your heart that will disown him. Don't get started. Repent if you mess up. But know that on that final day, if you love Jesus, he will say, you're with me. And that will be glorious and worth it. Where would we get this idea from in the Bible? Well, again, we see in Isaiah, in the very same passage, it says this. We would expect him to be crucified. It actually says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The suffering servant will die in our place. He'll be pierced for our sins. But more than just talking about his death, imagine this. It actually talks about his resurrection 700 years before. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After his death, after his burial, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How is that possible? Because he won't stay dead. He'll be raised up. So, Jesus is the crucified, suffering servant. And if it's true, we need to follow him to our own death. We need to die today to ourselves and say, God, I'm done with running my own life. We need to finish like that, and we need to be unsurprised by suffering. Because who are we with? The crucified Lord. It's reasonable and it's right. And then we get to this weird story on the mountain. It's odd, isn't it? it? It's pretty unusual. Have a look at verse 28 and following. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James and John with him and went up on the mountainside to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's a remarkable story, and what I want you to see here is that it wasn't that the ordinary carpenter, the ordinary carpenter, suddenly had glory added to him. Think with me, think with me, work hard, work hard. Jesus existed prior to his incarnation. He's always been the son of the father. He became a baby, born in Bethlehem. And what happened was the glory he had with the Father was veiled at his birth. He wandered around the streets, did a carpentry job. You could have bumped into him and you said, you're Joseph's son, you're the carpenter. And at his resurrection, he returned to the right-hand side of the Father where all of creation will worship him in his glory. Glory, glory, veiled glory, On the mountain, what happens isn't that glory is added to Jesus. It's that we get a little peek of the glory that is always his. Do you see this? It's extraordinary, right? And so they see the glory of Jesus and they're blown away. And then these two guys turn up on the mountain, right? Who's there? Moses and Elijah. And the really good bit for us is that people had speculated that he might be a prophet. Yeah, Like Moses, or he might be Elijah. How do we know he's not Moses or Elijah? Because he's having a chat with them, and Peter wants to put up a tent for them on the mountain, okay, right? So he can't be them. Cross them out, okay? Can't be them. And then we have a scene where the cloud comes over them, and a voice from the mountain, uh, from the cloud speaks, and, and the voice says something extraordinary This is my son, verse 35, whom I have chosen, listen to him. Now what does the Old Testament what does the Old Testament tell us about clouds and mountains and voices up on high? Well, if we go to the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain and from out of the fire and the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. The 10 commandments came on a mountain from a cloud with God. Yep. Awesome. And then voices from heaven, well, we've already seen this for Jesus. Do you remember at his baptism? The voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the beloved son of God. That's who he is, the beloved son of God. And if that's true, what do we need to do? We've got to listen to the son. We've got to listen to the son. That's reasonable and that's right. And then we get to this season that we're in today. And uh, as Jeff pointed out, all the palm branches that are around our church at the moment. I know, I know, I know. We should do more of this stuff, right? Does anyone have palm trees at home? Put your hand up. Great. This is why we don't have palms in our church, right? Seriously, I'm really happy. If someone wants to bring them in next year, knock yourselves out. I'm all for it, but I don't know where to get them from. Anyway, here we go. Palm trees. Thank you, Jeff. Um, In Luke 19... Luke gives his account of Jesus riding into into Jerusalem. And he says, uh, go into town and find the colt that's tied up here. And when you find it, ask for it. And someone says, why do you need it? Say, the master needs it. They grab the colt, they bring it in. It's never been written. Jesus sits on it as he's coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Everyone goes, hey, we recognize that bloke. Hosanna, praise God. He's the coming king of Israel. And they throw their coats down. It's, it's the red carpet treatment when you don't have red carpet. Are, are you with me? So not even your feet get on the dirty ground, because now it's cloaks and palm branches underneath you. Do, do you see? And so they're praising him. And people say, hey, Jesus, you should tell these guys to pipe down. It's a bit rude to think that you're the king of Israel. And he goes, look, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, if, <laughs> if they're not praising God, then actually we've got a bigger problem. This plan has been prepared from since the creation of the world. I'm your secret king, and I'm coming into Jerusalem, and that's wonderful. But if these guys don't speak, then the stones themselves will cry out because praise and honor and glory is due to me, and you can't resist it. Isn't that awesome? So at the end of the service, when we praise God, we think, oh, I've got another song to go before I get to pick my kids up and sign them out. I guess I'll sing it. No, 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 you've got to keep the carpet quiet, all right? You don't seem convinced. We've got to praise God, okay? And we know that this is part of God's plan because in Zechariah, it said this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 9, 9, there it is. As prophesied, Jesus fulfills it. And if it's true that he's the long-awaited Messiah, what do we need to do? We need to shout joyfully to welcome the king into our hearts. How wonderful, huh? How wonderful. It's reasonable and it's right. So my question for you today, guys, is, is Jesus a hobby? Is Jesus a hobby for you? I hope he's not. The way that we'll know is are we people who deny ourselves, who live a crucified life? We take up our cross daily and we say, I will not deny Jesus, I will deny myself. And these are flipped over if it's a hobby, right? If it's a hobby, okay, what will we do? We'll deny Jesus and we'll deny ourselves nothing. Sound right? Why wouldn't we do that? Because we recognize the crucified Messiah and we understand that we are not the most important person in the world. Do you want to know what it means to deny yourself? It's to put yourself second. It's to lift God up as number one. It's to put others before yourself. Die to yourself. We need to die now. What will it mean to honor the king? Well, it'll mean to recognize that Jesus is the most important person in the world. And how we do that, we'll worship him and not ourselves. We'll worship him. And so we'll die now that we might live on the day he returns. Yes? In all of his glory, we'll go, he's my man. And he'll say, you're my man, you're my woman. I love you. That's going to be a glorious day. So goes the question for us is, who do you say I am? Have you met in Jesus someone who is an occasional hobby? Or have you met the resurrected, crucified Lord so passionately that you don't think Asia Bibi is crazy for having hung on to Jesus for eight years in solitary confinement? You go, she saw something of such great worth that she would not abandon it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wasn't here for a hobby. The persecuted church doesn't hang on to Jesus for a hobby. Verse 51 tells us, at that time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Why did he go? He went to die. He went to pay the price for our sins. He went to rise and conquer death. And he did it deliberately in fulfillment of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, we're about to celebrate Easter and it's going to be glorious. and I can't wait for it because we're going to talk about the death of Jesus and his resurrection to win you to much more than a hobby. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your son is glorious. He'll be revealed as glorious on the day he returns. Father, save us from shame, save us from our sins. Remind us of the glory and the honour of being your sons and daughters. Father, win our hearts so that we die to ourselves and worship your Son. For we ask it in his name. Amen.